Well, thanks for joining us again. We're going to continue the discussion about evidence and the strength of evidence. This time looking at kind of how do we go about reading through the information that's being presented to us? Because we come across things where we kind of have a WTF moment. And we think to ourselves, how can that possibly be correct? How can that possibly be right based off of my understanding of information? We're given information from colleagues, from friends about things that they read on the internet or things they come across in journal articles, magazine articles, newspaper articles. And they try to convince us that it might be right or it might be wrong. Or if we're happen to be a student where we have to present information in an essay or in a, a written project, where we're trying to convince people that our information is correct in such a way as to change their point of view. And so one of the things we have to understand is how can we go about going through the evidence, understanding that we have different levels of strength of arguments there so that we have a grasp of the understanding of what's being presented to us. Understanding that we're not all experts in everything. In fact, very few are experts in more than one thing. But how can we go about reading things as if we are experts without needing the expertise in that field that we happen to be reading about? Because once again, we need to understand what's going on. So before we get started, if you are enjoying what we're putting out there, please make sure you give us a like and click that subscribe button if you haven't subscribed already. Share out to your friends and family and get them to subscribe. It's going to help us out with all of the metrics and the algorithms. So how can we go about going through the evidence and why is it important to understand the difference in the types of evidence that we happen to come across? Well, the biggest problem is, is that we're bombarded with media posts all the time. And most of us don't spend our days going through the scientific articles or reading the scientific articles to figure out is what's in the media posts correct or not. And so one of the things we have to remember is that the scientific articles come about through a peer review process. And that peer review process is hopefully going to come through based off of an impartial judgment of the information that's going to evaluate the manuscript that is being submitted for publication, looking at accuracy and reliability. Most of us who do the review process are not doing this in an attempt to uh, scuttle information being published or being presented, we're simply looking at it in terms of the validity, the accuracy, and the reliability of what's being presented. Because what the purpose of the scientific articles are to do is to expand our understanding of what's going on. And so it's important to understand that because we have to understand that the peer review articles that a lot of the social media posts are going to draw from, and a lot of the news articles are going to draw from, come about through a rigorous means of research that are attempting to draw a conclusion, to reach a conclusion. And it's a rigorous process in order to get published. Whereas you can do this right now, just go onto your social media posts and post something. There's no review process. There's no arbiter about the accuracy, the validity, or the reliability of what you're stating. 
even on the, the Wikipedia pages. They may have fact checkers that come into play, but the fact checkers are going to come into play after the publication has taken place, not before the publication has taken place. The news articles have a different bit of rigor to it, but the different bit, bit of rigor to it is not the same rigor as what is done within the peer review process of the scientific journals. The news articles are going to be more reliable and more valid than the social media posts, but they're not going to be as reliable or as valid as the scientific articles. As we continue along with this, okay, why is it important to know the difference? Which remember is that the, the scientific articles, the peer review articles, stem from the scientific method, regardless of what type of publication we're looking at. And they're going to reside within a network of understanding. And that network of understanding gets checked and rechecked, validated, invalidated, constantly. It's, it's why people get frustrated sometimes when they read articles about science saying something one week and science saying something completely different another week. And that's because during the time frame, different researchers were researching the same question and they came out with different conclusions. And what that does is that gives us an avenue to start to study to figure out which conclusion is the more accurate conclusion. And we'll, we'll take a look at why we can get to different conclusions here in a second. But it's the ability to check and recheck that it ensures that within science, we're getting the constant truth to the observations, not the opinion about an observation. Whereas when we start looking at the social media posts and the news articles, we very rarely have this desire to sit within a network of understanding. There are some very good news articles that do a lot of good investigations. But the investigations and the investigative reporting are not the same as the scientific experimentation. There is a lot of subjectivity within the observations that play out within those investigative articles that limits the objectivity to the conclusions that are being drawn. Social media posts, once again, it's completely subjective. There's very little ob objectivity that we see within a lot of the social media posts, which is nice because we all have a voice. But the problem is, is that just because we all have a voice doesn't mean that everybody's voice has the same level of accuracy within the opinions being stated. And we have to understand that there are some voices that are more accurate, more reliable, and more valid than other voices. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't question, but we have to understand that there's a difference between the opinions that are drawn at the end of a scientific investigation versus opinions that are drawn within the subjectivity of a social media post or of a news article. What we also have to remember is that the peer review is going to attempt to expand the understanding of the real world. It's going to attempt to understand the concepts. It's going to attempt to understand various topics 
as it relates to health and how the human body functions through objective observations and analysis of those objective observations. Even when we have subjective analysis taking place and subjective studying taking place, we still have a rigor to analysis that takes place. And then we have peer reviewers who are experts in the analysis of subjective observations versus objective observations. But what we're trying to do within the peer review process, within the scientific publication, is we're attempting to expand what do we understand about everything so that we have a better understanding of how stuff works. Because what we're able to do is we're able to develop the holistic view of the complexity that is the human body. Whereas if we look at particularly the social media posts that tend to kind of bombard us more than anything else, the idea within the post is to approach questions from a bias of presenting an opinion and presenting an opinion as if that is the only understanding that could possibly be. And once again, it's an attempt not really to start a conversation, but to, as the saying goes, poke the bear. A lot of what's being put out there within most of the social media posting is put out there not to be informative, but to be uh, argumentatively inquisitive. And not inquisitive in terms of asking questions, but inquisitive in terms of prodding and poking ideas in an attempt to not get people to listen for the purposes of listening, but listen for the purposes of reacting. And so what are we going to look for? How do we go about reading through the articles to understand what's going on? And what I'm going to talk about here for a little bit of time is coming from a very good article within the October 21st, 2022 uh, Science Journal, the Journal of Science, by Osborne and Pimitol. And they kind of go through, okay, how can we go about doing a better job at educating students in the scientific classrooms on how to read scientific articles. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to read scientific articles, and we'll talk a little bit about the different types of scientific articles and what to look for within the areas of each of the journal articles so that we are able to make more informed conclusions, more informed inferences. And so we have to approach this with the understanding that we are not experts in everything. But if we're expert in how to read the articles, then we can understand what is being presented to us. And by understanding what's being presented to us, we get a better understanding of the world whole. So what are we going to look for within the articles? What do we need to pay attention to? And when we talk about what do we need to pay, pay attention to, what we're really talking about is what are red flag warnings? that say this is not a reliable resource. This is not a reliable citation to use. And that has become more problematic over the last couple of decades 
with what has become uh, pay-to-publish articles that would not otherwise pass peer review are getting published because of the some of the nature of some of the publishing agents that are out there that have watered down some of the peer reviewing that's being done but can get countered if we understand the different types of articles that are out there and how to better understand those different types of articles so why is this all important we have to remember that we are all depending on the expertise of others. We're relying on the credibility of the authors and of the peer review process to present and represent a consensus of ideas. And as uh, Osborne states in, the, in his article, as Osborne states in the article, it's very important because we need to know and we need to have true knowledge about how things work for the common good, for all of us. Because if we don't have true knowledge about what's going on, then we're simply going to have discussions about opinions. And the problem with the discussion about opinions is that everybody's opinion is valid. And everybody's opinion is valid to themselves. It's good to have an opinion. But it's better to have a valid and reliable opinion that is backed up by factual information that has been validated and been shown to be reliable than just to have an opinion. When we cannot reach a consensus amongst everybody about what is true and what is false, then we cannot have good, reliable information to allow us to have, in case of what we've been talking about, a healthy lifestyle that allows me to optimally perform and maintain my body in proper working conditions. And that's where we get into these conversations, debate there if you want to put debate there, about things like what is the best diet to follow. And that's because everybody has their own opinion about diets. What is the best exercise to follow? And once again, everybody's going to have their own opinion about that. But how many people actually delve into the research articles and actually look at what is the consensus of what's out there? What do we know that is true knowledge about the information? With the understanding that, just because my area of expertise happens to be within non-communicable disease issues, endocrine issues as re in response to health aspects and metabolic responses within the body. Just because that's, that's where my area of expertise happens, it doesn't mean that I cannot offer a valid opinion about other things if I understand how to go about reading through the information. And so this is where we have to remember is that there's, there's a but here. And the but happens to be, what is my choice in trust? And what we have to do is we have to look, okay, who am I choosing to trust? Who am I choosing to trust? And who am I choosing to trust 
within the avenue of media presentation. Because once again, most of us are not going to spend our days going through the journal articles. And even if we are going through the journal journal articles, there are so many journal articles, we can never be able to read everything. And this becomes problematic because based off of who you are trusting to disseminate some of the information coming out of the health and medical research and out of the what we call the biomedical research, there's an increase of concern about trust in science. And it's mainly due to misinformation being presented. And the problem is, is that misinformation thrives because the authors of the misinformation are going to appeal to the mythical idea of, of science. And the mythical idea of science is that science somehow knows everything. Or that science is this mythical beast about knowledge. Whereas science is nothing more than a means by which we go about examining things. But the other part of this is that they'll conflate their science needs, knows everything, the mythical idea about science, by presenting a fallacious statement about there's an inability to know everything. And that's true. There's an inability to know everything. And that's where you have to understand where you fall within the Dunning curve and understand that the more expertise you have in one area, the less expertise you have in other areas. And if you don't know anything, you cannot present yourself as being an expert, such as the, the person telling me that enriched and fortified food products and enriched and fortified grain products is what's causing, is what caused that person to become overweight over fat without understanding that the, the vitamins that they were discussing, the B vitamins in particular, which are added to enrich and to fortify some of the grain products, are there to offset lack of B vitamins that individuals might succumb to due to dietary restrictions. And so because we have this misinformation issue, we have to be willing and able to understand what is the limits of science and scientific understanding. But more importantly, how can I go about evaluating the credibility of the information that is there? How can I evaluate the credibility of scientific information? How can I evaluate that, that credibility to see, is it misinformation or is it attempting to possibly debunk the misinformation that's being presented within the media sphere? And the only way that we're able to do this is to teach us, is to teach each other, to work about developing the best tools to make informed decisions, to develop literacy skills, to understand that you might seek out an answer, but you're not an expert or have the expertise to speak about the truth of why or how something's occurring. 
the people who are able to speak out to how and why something's occurring are the experts. These are the people that have spent years, decades, most of their lives, most of their professional lives, most of their adulthood, trying to answer one or two single questions. There are a few of us out there that will bounce between questions, but it all tends to come back to one or two key questions, even if we're bouncing around between questions. And so what is the goal that we have to set out for ourselves? And what is the goal for what we're going to talk about here? The goal here is how to be a competent reader of scientific information. So you're able to see credible information from the misinformation that we see throughout our social media feeds and sometimes within the news articles. So what are the three components to understanding? What are the three key points that we have to come away from? We have to understand the social practices within the scientific, scientific community to produce reliable and valid information. What is the criteria for being a scientific expert? And our basics for understanding digital media literacy. And once again, these are coming from the Osborne article. So knowledge and awareness here is central to developing competency. We have to have some level of knowledge. We have to have a, a foundational or fundamental understanding of what's going on within our body. And then we have to be aware of the fact that we're not experts. And that who we're reading in scientific articles may be the expert, but they may not be the expert. And we have to understand that. We have to be aware of the fact that just because they're publishing doesn't necessarily mean that they are an expert, particularly if they're presenting a contrarian idea. And if we have that base knowledge, we have that foundational knowledge, that fundamental understanding of what's going on, and the awareness that we are developing competencies, and the developing competency is going to allow us to interrogate the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of the source and of the claim, the trustworthiness and the truthfulness. We cannot make words mean whatever we want to make words mean. We cannot make facts to be whatever we want those facts to mean. Opinions and facts are two different things. We have to understand that when we're looking at and reading through the scientific articles. And so the U.S. De uh, Department of Education gave us this kind of handy hint here in terms of our media literacy. And we're going to focus on two key aspects here. The information literacy, that is, how can I search for, find, evaluate, and analyze accurate, reliable information? And then my critical thinking. How can I understand, analyze, and critically evaluate the information in order to develop an informed opinion about it? 
and this is where we have to understand in terms of the critical thinking and the reflection part, is what is the source material? How was the source material produced? How was it disseminated? How accurate is that information? And so we have to understand how do I get my information? And then once I get my information, how do I go about critically evaluating that information so that I can generate an informed opinion about that? Now, in the English classes, they'll consider this informed opinion a hypothesis. However, in science and in scientific method, that's not really what a hypothesis is. So when we talk about this in, here in a second, we'll talk about development of a hypothesis. What we're talking about in scientific vernacular and scientific terms, the hypothesis is my explanation about the observation that I'm going to go about testing. I develop that hypothesis through deductive reasoning based off of what is already known about my question. When I'm developing my media literacy and when I'm looking at all of my information to figure out how accurate, reliable, valid is that information and developing a hypothesis, an informed opinion about it in the case of the, the English sense of hypothesis. What I'm really attempting to do is uh, I'm attempting to make an educated statement about the information being presented to me. It's not an opinion-based information. It's a fact-based information. However, it's not necessarily a conclusion. Conclusions can only come about through inferences based off of data analysis. Hypotheses come about from inferences due to analysis of previously reported findings. Applications of scientific principles and scientific theories and theorems. And so Osborne gives us a kind of heuristic approach to evaluate the information. We'll take a quick second here to look at each of these three points. And so point one, in terms of do I accept or reject the information, is the information credible? If it's not credible, I reject it. If it is credible, I then go to the next step. And the next step is, does the source of the claim have expertise? And once again, this is where we have to be kind of careful about this, because what does it mean to have expertise in it? A new scientist may not have the same expertise as a world-renowned scientist. But just because they happen to be world-renowned does not necessarily mean that they are experts or have expertise. And then the, the last part that we have to look at in terms of the heuristic is there a consensus among the scientific experts, amongst the peers of the scientists? And this is where we don't necessarily have a accept or reject, but this is where we have to look at, is there a probability of certainty or a probability of uncertainty? And so let's, Go through each one of these questions and let's look at what the key question happens to be for each one. 
So is the information credible? And so what we're basically asking, is there a conflict of interest? Is there impartiality? Is there citations to the sources of evidence? So basically we're asking, is there bias? That's what the first question that we're looking at here is in terms of the heuristics in terms of credibility. Is there bias? And if there is bias in what's being presented, then we have to take a step back and think about, is this really a credible source? Now, I understand that at first glance, we may not understand whether bias is there or not. And that's where we have to look at acknowledgements within the article to figure out, was the study funded by a company that is attempting to show something works or not? Is there a bias in how they did their analysis? And once again, we'll talk about this when we look at the results of a paper here in a second. We're not expected to be experts in statistical analysis. But if they're claiming that something is better than something else, but there's no difference being presented, then how valid is that claim? Did they look at just a handful of subjects in a handful of observations, or do they look at all of the subjects in all of the observations? Did they set up the experiment in such a way to be scientific, that is to test a hypothesis, or did they set up the, the experiment pseudoscientifically in an attempt to prove a hypothesis? So the next thing we have to look at is, do they have the expertise? That is, do they have the background established? to provide understanding to the concept? Or are they just trying to prod some sort of debate? Are they there in an attempt to expand understanding? Or are they there just to poke the bear? And this is where we have to last to look at what consensuses do we have? Are they a lone voice in understanding? And if they are a lone voice in understanding, are they speaking with absolute certainty? And here's the thing with science and is where the misinformation comes into play. Because science is never absolute, because we're constantly expanding our understanding, a lone voice claiming to have full understanding and speaking in absolute certainty is not speaking scientifically. And so when we're looking at this last point, we're simply looking at, is the idea novel and expanding our understanding? Or are we attempting to present a contrarian idea? Now, here's the thing. Just because we have a contrarian idea doesn't make the source less credible. 
if we're looking at counter arguments, and this is coming from someone who has presented counter arguments and contrarian ideas about what has been viewed as classically being correct. What we have to do is we have to take a step back and we have to look at the information. We have to look at the arguments that are being presented. What is the sourcing of the information to support the counter argument and to support the argument? What is the logical flow within the argument that's being presented? Do we fit ideas logically together? Or are there fallacies being presented? And so there is a lot of scientific understanding that is contradictory to previously held quote unquote truths. And this is where we have to remember is that when we're looking at scientific stuff, we're basically taking a true false quiz, taking a true false test where the observation and the analysis is going to tell me, is the statement true or is the statement false? And based off of true false, if the statement is constantly being shown to be true, one contradictory or one contrarian argument does not prove the statement to be false. However, if we take a contrarian point of view into the total sum of all of our understanding, what it does is it gives caveats to it. It gives us special considerations to the understanding of what's going on that might challenge classically held beliefs. And this is where we have to remember is that science is not a belief system. Science is a methodological process to allow for better understanding of the world whole. All right, I understand what everybody's thinking about now. Okay, so that all makes perfect sense. We have these three things we have to kind of remember when we're looking at articles, but then why is it so hard to read the articles? Why is it so hard to understand what's being presented? And part of this is because we tend to write to scientific art, scientific audiences in journal articles and not to everybody as a whole, the whole entire population. But the other part is that we're writing in such a way so as to indicate how you can go about repeating what I did so that we're able to check each other and recheck each other so we get a better understanding of everything going on. And so how do we go about developing this consensus? How do we go about developing an understanding of what's going on? So let's walk through the different types of articles that we will see. And then let's talk about what we'll see within the articles and red flags that we have to worry about in our research articles that are typically the ones that we'll see being cited and referenced in news articles because news articles very rarely will cite or reference the strongest of the evidence. So what are the different types of articles that we should be willing to look at? 
and we'll stepwise go through this in terms of kind of the weakest to the most strong in terms of our levels of evidentiary support, strength of evidence. So the first one we should be able to look at and read through is the case study. And so what is a case study? So a case study is simply an article that's going to look at a single patient or a group of patients, and it's going to describe some sort of issue or some sort of treatment. You can think of this kind of as the, the anecdotes, the antidotes. This is kind of, oh, this is what happened to me kind of article. But there's a little bit of objective evaluation because it's not the person writing in a first-person narrative, but it's the person treating the patient writing in the narrative. It's not meant to act as an explanatory article. What it's meant to do is it's meant to establish a question for further research. What can be done to treat a patient? What might distinct symptoms look like for distinct diseases? And this is always written based on the individual without an understanding that that individual is going to be somewhere along the normal curve of responses. And so this is kind of like the, the weakest of the scientific arguments. Could it be true? Yes. Could it not be true? Yes. What we're dealing with is one person. And what I like to tell my students, and it comes from what a professor told me in my graduate education, is that what happens to one person is what happens to one person. What happens in one study is what happens in one study. And just because it happens to one doesn't mean it happens to everyone. So we have the case study. Now we have what's referred to as commentaries. And commentaries you have to think about as like expert opinions. And so a commentary is going to be the opinion from an expert or a group of experts. And what the commentary is attempting to do is attempting to convey an idea of consensus about a topic or convey a consensus about a concept. A lot of times we will see commentaries that are done in response to a contrarian publication or when ideas get spread that threaten the public good. We saw a lot of these commentaries uh, over the last few years, once again, this is 2023, from early 2020 through even today, a lot of commentaries about the necessity for vaccinations as relates to uh, the pandemic from 2019, 2020, 2021, with the spread of the, the coronavirus, COVID-19. where there's a lot of opinions out there that were threatening the public good. And we had a lot of commentaries coming from a lot of the public health experts that were attempting to prevent a consensus idea or provide a consensus idea to prevent further spread, further pandemic nature of spread of the virus. So we have our case study, we have our commentary. 
Now we get to what we think about when we think about scientific articles. And that's what's referred to as the primary or the principal articles. So the primary or principal research paper is what we traditionally think about in terms of scientific journals. These tend to be excessively dense in terms of the writing. These tend to be dense in terms of the ability to extract information for someone that doesn't have expertise in the field that they're reading. What the primary research article should do is provide a summary for why the study needs to be done, the methodology that went about to answer the question about why the study needs to be done, what did the researchers find, what were the results of the study, and then how do the findings relate to what is already known? And so in the primary research paper, what we do is we go through a deductive summary of what do we already know that leads to the hypothesis. This is what I think is true. This is what I did to test that statement about what I think is true. This is what I found. This is how my findings relate to everything that I already know. And then based off of my findings, my analysis of the findings, and what I already know, this is what I now know to be true. That's what the primary research paper is going to do. The problem with understanding the primary research paper for someone that is not an expert in that field is getting through the what was done part. The what was done part, the methodology part, is typically the hardest part to understand for someone that is not an expert in that field. I'm going to give you some key pointers to look at when going through that part of a paper where you can understand what should I be aware of without needing to be an expert. So what's the next one that we can get to? And that's what's referred to as the narrative review. The narrative review is different than the commentary. The narrative review sets out to address a specific question. From that specific question, we then deductively reason out and provide a summary about. So we're going to deductively reason out a conclusion, develop a hypothesis that provides a summary opinion about the topic or concept covered in the review that is not meant to be an end point of analysis, an end point of commentary, an end point of opinionation. What the narrative review is supposed to do is it's supposed to provide a summary about an idea while providing the foundations for either a new line of studying or present a question within that deductive reasoning that allows for the next level of 
article. And the next level of articles was referred to as the systematic review. And so what the systematic review does is it takes that narrative review and it kind of kicks it up a notch. And what it's going to do is it's going to say, okay, the narrative review looks at a narrow window of what do we know? But now I'm going to do more of a comprehensive review. Not only am I going to do a comprehensive review, but I'm going to tell you what is the strength of evidence that we have about the published information on the topic. And I'm going to do this in such a way that I'm going to have a specific question that I'm going to answer. And from that specific question, I'm going to develop a hypothesis. The systematic review is going to test that hypothesis without doing full analysis. It's going to, based off of the strength of evidence, the total amount of studies that have been done that both show positive as well as negative, as well as neutral information out there, it's going to allow me to follow both the deductive and inductive pattern of reasoning that will hopefully take me past just a simple opinion to more of an informed opinion about the concept, about the topic. That's going to give me the burgeoning consensus of idea. It's going to allow me to summarize this is what everybody is saying about a topic about a concept without being able to provide the fundamental conclusion about the truthiness of it, the truthfulness of it. How true, how false is the final opinion comes about from the last of the types of articles that we can have access to. And it's the hardest of the articles to write. And that's the meta-analytical or the meta-analyst. The meta-analysis and the meta-analytical is a form of a systematic review. It's a form of systematic review where we're going to have a specific question and I have a specific hypothesis from that specific question that I'm going to test by reviewing all of the material that I can get access to. Not only am I going to provide indication of the strength of evidence, but I'm also going to look at what's referred to as pooled effects and pooled statistics in an attempt to get to the truthfulness of the conclusions that have been raised. Based off of the pooled effects that we get within the meta-analytical papers, what I'm able to do is I'm able to develop a consensus of ideas. I'm able to develop what is the best known truth to the topic. And so what am I going to be looking for within each of those articles that's going to help me understand 
what is the truth being presented? What is the validity and the reliability and the credibility of the information that is contained within the, within the articles? And there are distinct parts of the article that we need to be aware of. The title, the abstract, the introduction, the methods, the results, the discussion, and then the conclusion. And the only area where you have to be a full expert, not just a competent reader, but a full expert in order to understand what's going on in most of the biomedical health, public health, scientific journals is the methods section. In order to grasp in full detail the results, you need to have a little bit of understanding of statistical analysis. Both of which go well beyond the time that we can spend discussing it here in this podcast. But let's take a look at some things that we need to remember about each one of these components. And what are some red flags that we have to be aware of? So for the title, we should be told something about the study and something about the generalizations of the findings. There are some authors, there are some uh, principal investigators, there are some journal editors that try to get us to use kind of clickbait, catchy titles. But the titles should inform us about what is in the study, even if it, it, even if it is kind of clickbaity, even if it is kind of trying to be catchy. Some authors are very good at writing catchy, clickbaity titles. I myself am not. Now we get to the abstract. A lot of times this is where people stop reading. Abstracts are usually very short. Abstracts typically provide a synopsis of what's in the article, or hopefully should provide a synopsis of what's in the article. So it's going to provide us a snapshot. It's going to tell us what were the methods of research. What was the population used in the study? What were the key results? And then what can be concluded? And so for most of us, this is what we're going to stop reading. Most of us are going to stop reading after the abstract. A lot of times because a lot of the journals are behind paywalls. A lot of times because we're afraid that we're not going to understand what's going on. And that's because we're not, we're, we're unwilling or unable to become competent readers. And so hopefully we'll be able to be a little bit more competent in our reading to move into the introduction. And so the introduction should provide a rationale for the study. It should follow deductive 
reasoning. It should tell me if it's a primary research article or a systematic review or a meta-analytical paper. What is already known? What is the observation that's going to lead to the question that's going to lead to the hypothesis? It's going to develop a purpose for the study. And from that purpose for the study, it's going to lead to the hypothesis, the explanation that's going to be tested. In the case study and in the commentary, we usually don't see this. Most of what we see in the case study is the results in the commentary on the results. In the commentary, we'll see a, a discussion, but we won't see a discussion of results. We'll, see, we'll simply see the, the introduction to a paper presented as the paper whole. For a narrative review, we may see an introduction, but the majority of the, of the narrative review is going to be an expanded introduction. It's like having a, a four or five or six page introduction to a paper. Most introductions, if it's well-written, will be... Uh, five to six paragraphs at most. Some are as short as two or three paragraphs. At the end of the introduction, we should get the hypothesis. The hypothesis is a testable statement of explanation. This is where we have to worry about some red flags here in terms of the hypothesis. Red flags for hypothesis is a statement that is not testable. Red flags for hypothesis is a statement that is a statement of purpose. When we look at hypotheses, what we're looking at is statements that are going to explain a phenomenon, but explain a phenomenon in such a way that it becomes a testable statement. In Elementary scientific education, it's usually taught as an if-then statement. But if-then statements are more of predictors, not of explanations. If-thens are the observational statement that leads to hypothesis. So one hypothesis that I've recently been analyzing and publishing on is the fact that, or this observation that bias of opinions impacts means by which I present educational information. That's the hypothesis that we've been testing in a few survey studies. It's not a statement of, if I'm biased, then I present slanted information. It's a statement that biases impact how information is presented. 
similar idea, just a different difference in how that statement gets formed. Because the if-then statement is not testable. Because it's an observation. If this occurred, then that occurred. Well, why did it occur? How did it occur? When did it occur? That's where the hypothesis comes into play. And so when we're reading through the hypothesis, what we want to do is we want to make sure that what's being presented is a statement that they're going to go about testing in their methods and testing in their analysis of observations presented in their results. If we have red flags, or if we see red flags, then we need to question the findings. Because if I don't have a good hypothesis, I cannot do analysis that is reliable and valid. Because the statistical analysis is set up in such a way as to test a hypothesis. And without a good hypothesis, then I cannot do good statistical analysis, which takes us into the methodology. The methodology should provide a summary for how the study was conducted and analyzed. This is where you have to have some degree of expertise. However, without having any degree of expertise, what should we, what should we be aware of? Was the study approved and by whom? How were the populations formed? How was the population within each study formed? Was it a general population where they were recruiting from everybody in the community? Was it a restricted population where they only got the students in their class to participate? Was it an animal study that they were trying to present as having a valid explanation for human physiology. Were the groupings randomly put together? How were the observations being recorded? Were they using gold standard methodologies? Were they using reliable and valid methodologies? If we're looking at physiological responses, changes of strength, changes of weight, and we're indicating self-reported changes, we have to be kind of leery about some of the findings that get presented. Do you get informed as to how they did analysis? And this is where we have to be concerned. Are they presenting correlative analysis as being causal analysis? Once again, you have to be competent in terms of understanding the difference between correlations, things are associated with each other, versus causal relationships, X causes Y. 
but you don't have to be an expert in the field to understand the difference between those two things. In the results, are they presenting a clear synopsis of the findings? Are they presenting a clear summary of what's going on? Do they have tables to show the data? Do they have graphs to show the data? Do the graphs and the tables match what's being presented in the narrative form of the results? If they're discussing differences, are the differences meaningful? Just because they state a significant difference doesn't necessarily mean that the, the difference has actual meaning to them. What was the type of analysis followed in terms of correlative versus causal? And do the statements of analysis match that type of analysis? And once again, you don't have to be an expert in the field to understand what's being presented in the results section. Stemming from the results section, we get to the discussion. And this is very important here. If we have any red flags coming out from the methodology or from the hypothesis, we have to be leery about what's being presented in the discussion. The discussion is going to do two things. It's going to provide a more detailed summary of the findings by giving rationale to what was summarized in the results. That rationale is going to come from an inductive pattern of reasoning. I'm going to try to fit my findings into what is already known about the concept, about the topic. The methodology and the results we see in the primary research and in the meta-analysis papers. Systematic reviews may show results, but the results they're showing is how strong or weak are the evidence are the evidentiary support that I have. What is the summary of all of the articles? The discussion here is going to be the same across the primary research the systematic review, and the meta-analysis papers. How does my findings relate to what is already known? How do my findings fit within the scientific principles that govern the physiology of the body and the theories that give rationale to those principles? In this, we have to follow an inductive line of reasoning. We're trying to infer meaning. We're trying to infer meaning based off of me placing my understanding into the conclusions that are able to be drawn. Conclusions that come about from how do others agree or disagree with my findings? And if there's disagreement, how can I reconcile that disagreement? And it has to be done 
in a logical manner without presenting any logical fallacies. At the end of the discussion, we get to the conclusions. And this is once again, where you don't have to be an expert in order to understand what's being presented. It should be a clear statement about what the findings mean. What does my expertise on the topic allow me to state about what the findings mean in the big picture? It has to be specific to the study design, the population that was studied, and the hypothesis that was being tested. If the conclusion goes beyond that, we have to watch out. It needs to be definitive, but not restrictive. We cannot absolutely conclude that what I found is the only thing that can be found. Because once again, science is building on other science in a check and recheck methodology. And so we have to watch out for some of the red flags here. What to remember is that the conclusion needs to be an explanation. If that explanation is too definitive, we have to be a little kind of leery about what is being stipulated. If it's too opinionated, we have to be leery about what is being stipulated. Conclusions have to have definitive arguments to them, but they have to allow for room to be countered. They have to provide means to be negated, to be shown to be false. If it's too opinionated, what ends up happening is that I go away from scientific methodology and get into more of a philosophical argument. And scientific methodology should minimize the amount of philosophical argument and focus more on what are the observations and what do the observations mean based off of understanding of real-world phenomenon. If I'm too definitive or if I'm too opinionated, we have to kind of question the conclusions that are being offered. If the conclusions that are being raised don't match the results, and if the discussion veers away from the results to be presented in a biased slant, an opinionated slant, then we have to question the conclusions that are being offered. So what are the key points to remember here? What One, we don't have to be an expert in the field to understand what is being presented. What we have to be willing to do is go through and read through the introduction, the results, and the discussion, looking at what is the logical process that they are following, 
And do the arguments being made reflect what is being seen in the observations being offered? Where the commentaries and the case studies and the narrative reviews offer the least amount of evidentiary support but do provide key aspects to formulating hypotheses to be tested. We have to be aware of red flags in the hypothesis and in the conclusions. And if we happen to have any degree of expertise in the concepts being discussed, or in the statistics being run, red flags within how was the experiment set up and what type of analysis was done. The big red flag we have to watch out for in that analysis question, even without having expertise, are they stipulating correlative findings as being causal findings? Correlations are simply things that are associations. Everything is correlative. But just because everything is correlative does not mean everything is causal. We need to be aware of conflicts of interest and potential bias. This is where we have to look at within the acknowledgments, indications for funding. This is where in the development of the hypothesis or in looking at the methodology, are they attempting to test a hypothesis or are they attempting to prove something? When we're looking at articles, and it goes back to the strength of evidence discussion, the peer-reviewed articles are always better than any of the other opinions because we know that out of all of the options, the peer-reviewed have at least the chance to have impartial judgment on the validity, the reliability, and the accuracy of the information that's out there. For those of you that have access to uh, the Science Journal, I recommend go ahead and reading the Osborne article from the 21 October 2022 edition of Science. You can usually find it at most of your libraries. And for those of you who are at college or are associated with an institute, most institutes do have access to that journal. Are there other things that you think about or Try to look at when you're reading through articles. Please let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. Are there other things that you would like us to talk about in terms of finding evidentiary support and strength of evidence? Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Hopefully got a little bit out of the discussions on strength of evidence and how to go about looking at articles in terms of your literacy. 
please make sure that you click that like button, click that subscribe button, rate and review, and follow us on all of the various platforms that we're publishing.